Today on the NFL Films Podcast. We are back in studio. The season may be over, but another season is already begun. It's draft season. It's combine season. We're here with the guru, Greg Cosell. He is getting ready for Indianapolis, and we're going to break it all down. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Welcome back, folks. It's NFL Films Podcast time. I think we should start by noting that Greg Cosell is now officially the longest tenured employee of NFL Films. Is that that? That is absolutely true. I just finished my thirty-eighth season, Mr. Cosrow. And we and so we had we had a a, a a bunch of retirements. The NFL had a generous retirement program that. Um, uh, was appealing for many of the longest-standing NFL Films employees. As a result, we had 25 of our most senior employees, totaling 734 years of service, retire after Super Bowl 52, leaving the aforementioned Mr. Cosell. As uh, Mick Jagger once as, said, wild horses could not drag me away, Keith. Uh, they'll find somebody. They'll, fi- <laughs> they'll find somebody to drag you away soon enough. <laughs> Some incentive. Well, Greg, are you ready for another season? For you, you you just keep going. They just keep rolling on. Uh, And the thing about Greg the last month, and he's going to fill us in, but let's just paint a picture here because the season ended. The last NFL matchup show concluded pre-Super Bowl, right? You're out in Minnesota. We shot it at the Super Bowl in a mall in Minnesota, by the way. Greg, there was, for all of our listeners out there, they know there was uh, a little bit of concern leading up to Super Bowl as related to the climate out in Minnesota, how did you fare in the uh, subarctic temperatures in the land of ten thousand lakes? I stayed in a lot inside. Okay, <laughs> duck and cover. It was uh, actually the the day of the game uh, was was a little nippy. I, Keith was there; he could probably attest to that as well. When you left the game at night, and we had to walk a bit to the bus, it was just you know it was just minus 17 wind chill no problem that's all i i decided uh as you know i'm a bastion of positivity paul yes i decided to embrace the bold north when and, did and when did that happen is that was that a new year's resolution i you know i i think uh, my positive vibes are underrated <laughs> yeah, everybody I, says I decided, that about you it's true i i decided <laughs> the minute i got there that i was not going to spend any time complaining about the weather and and oh i didn't complain yeah it was uh, it was a it was a it was a good time i i would just like to say this i missed you guys oh it thanks Keith. Nice, it was such a nice january i mean we all work essentially yeah. across the hall from each other but these times we had together in january working our way through that uh, wonderful postseason was those were special days. I felt more prepared uh, to watch to be back. playoff games this year than maybe ever, and I attribute it to the uh, to, not to myself but to these conversations because <laughs> we definitely were prepared. Thank you to uh, to mostly to Greg for pointing out things uh, about the game. Brandon Graham going to be a disruptive inside force in the Super Bowl, and lo and behold, what happens? The decisive, the only decisive defensive play is made by. Well, Brandon you remember, Gert. of course, me saying yes. before the Super yes. Bowl that Brady would throw for 500 yards. The Patriots would never punt, and the Eagles would win. Right? Well, not that part. That you was, remember that, me saying that, that no, hit the I, floor. Remember when we cut oh, that part out? Oh, we cut out. that part out. Yeah. Well, I said that. Oh, okay. Be that as it may, <laughs> turning the page on the 2017 season, Greg, no moss grows on this guy. He cuts back to films. He goes back into his tape watching room, turns the lights off. 
and starts grinding. And he's still really only in the middle of his draft and combine process. I'm early in the stage. Well, yeah, the draft so, is two months away. Yeah, oh. So to paint a picture, we, we come back from the Super Bowl and the re- you know most of us are working on that week after the Super Bowl, we have about eight different shows recapping the Super Bowl for 100 different networks plus the instant highlight film. So most of the company is, is busy recapping the Super Bowl. Um, and Greg is already watching tape of, of the prospects for the draft, correct? And that is what, you know, paint a picture for yeah. us of what draft season is for Greg Cosell. I'm like the Sixers, Keith. I know you'll appreciate this. I just trust the process. I love the process of just putting on the college coaching tape and just watching players and then with one thing really in mind, and that's transitioning and projecting players to the NFL because that's what NFL teams do. So the way I go about it, and I try to watch more than 200 players when all is said and done, and I watch as many games as I realistically can. Now, I'm not watching every game that every prospect plays in in his final year in college. That's unrealistic and not necessary. But depending on the player, quarterbacks in particular, I try to watch six, seven games of each quarterback and then specific situations like all third downs or all of their 15-plus yard plays to get a feel for how they make them, all of their sacks, all of their interceptions to see how those come about. But that's relatively true for most players that I watch. I try to watch at least three games of every player. Very often you try to watch what it might be viewed as their best game and then what would be their worst game. And stats can sometimes help you, but not always. Uh, Defensive linemen, for instance, there's been many games I've watched defensive linemen. I look on the stat sheet, he has one tackle. I watched the game and he was a dominant player in the game and had one tackle. Now, when you say you watch a game, you're not watching the game broadcast that you see on TV. I'm watching what would be called the coaching tape, the All-22. So I'm seeing the sideline shot where you can see all 22 players, and then I'm seeing the end zone shot, which, of course, is particularly impactful when you're watching offensive linemen, when you're watching defensive linemen, linebackers, safeties, of course, at times. Uh, So that's what I do. So I'm seeing each play from those two separate angles. And as I said, I'll watch full games, and then I'll further delineate and watch specific situations and specific plays. This is an important distinction because, you know, when we there are there there are everyone can purchase access to NFL coaching tape. I think through NFL Game Pass, but not college. College coaching tape is not available to the general public, and just because someone is out there saying that they're a draft expert because they've been watching tape doesn't necessarily mean that they've been watching the coaching tape, which the gurus will tell you is the only way to really watch everything and eval- and properly evaluate, and which, you know, none of us really watch. So, so, so Greg... Which, of his, course, uh, doesn't make me... You know, this is a very subjective business. Right. Um, it's a process. It's team-specific. It's scheme-specific. It's coach-specific. There's so many variables, Cos, which is one reason why I've always been not a list guy. When people say, give me your top five this or your top five that... I really struggle with that concept because, as we know, following the NFL, there are so many variables that make a player a good player or maybe not such a good player, and then maybe he goes somewhere else and he's a good player. 
you know, so I, I just struggle with the concept of lists. Uh, you know, everybody can see a guy who's great. You know, my daughters could probably look at a guy and say, wow, that guy's a great athlete. But it's it's not the top, top guys or or the guys who clearly anybody can look at and say, hey, they're not likely to play in the league. There are so many guys in the middle, and those are the guys that are the most challenging but the most fun because what are teams doing? They're transitioning to their team. You know, Bill Belichick, and I, I, I love this philosophy, Bill Belichick if I'm not mistaken, does not have his scouts and his scouting department put draft grades on players. You know, say, oh, he's a third-round prospect. He's a fourth-round prospect. Because in a sense, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. What you're trying to do is make your team better. And can this particular player, tell me what this player can do in the context of our team, our scheme, our approach. We'll figure out where he gets drafted based on the draft. You know, to say, oh, he's a third round prospect. To me, I don't know exactly what that means. I think that's an important distinction, and it's a good level set for us to start from. I think fans often get lulled into thinking of the draft as sort of a Christmas morning. We're going we're gonna to come downstairs, we're going to see this shiny new toy, open it up, and wow, we're excited about that. It's really, these are like more like lines of code, right, in a computer yeah. program. The, the, the combine is one line, it goes to the draft, which is one line. Really, it starts with the day that you hire your head coach and he comes in and starts to hire his assistants and the whole program, it's sort of a global entity that I think we have to look at and think about. And I think that's why I'm interested in in when you talk about projectability and how you watch these college players on college tape having just come off a season of watching all the NFL teams in the NFL tape, right? The That's kind of the backdrop against which I think we have to paint these new Well, that's what these teams new, are doing. These they new should, pieces. They should be doing. I mean, you know, you should be evaluating players. Obviously, I'm looking at it in a broader macro view of, you know, I can watch a player and say, hey, I think he's a 3-4 outside linebacker. Now, a 4-3 team may look at that guy and say, well, on our draft board. He's way down because that's what he is and we don't that's how we see him and and he doesn't fit what we do. I don't do it that way. I do it from a macro perspective and I then, you know, sort of plug them in the way I see them. But ideally, that's what teams are doing is they're looking at players and trying to figure out how they can get better. That's really the goal. How do you get better as a team? You know, is the guy you're drafting, can he replace a guy who's on your team now, fill that role, and be better at it? So the combine yep. is really two months before the draft. Yes, it there, is. There are certain tentpole events in the in draft season, as it's come to be known. There's Senior Bowl, where all the seniors get to go practice for a week and then yep. play a game. There is Combine. Then there are pro days. Uh, there are private workouts, all of which will unfold. And then, and then teams are allowed to have thirty players come visit them. Yes. Uh, so there are various stages to this process. What? Just give us a, a paint a picture of of the, where the combine is in the process and where teams well, are in their evaluation and what they're looking for this week and what you're going to be doing at the combine. Yeah. This well, week. I'm I think. For. I, for the combine for me is not so much evaluation of players because I'm a big tape study guy and, and I always struggle with the idea that a player changes with his on-field play when there are no more games being played. Now, to me, the combine for teams, and I've had many of these conversations with coaches, with personnel people, 
that's more for the interviews, for the medicals, get to know the player, get to know the person. They've seen the tape. The combine, to me, when you look at the on-field, is more about extremes. You know, if all of a sudden you watch a player on tape and you like him, don't love him, but you like him, and then he tests amazingly well, you know, his athleticism his, is off the charts. Then you might go back and watch him with the idea that, did I miss something? Is there a way that we can take this player and through coaching and through maybe different utilization than we initially thought, because he has these phenomenal athletic measurables that he can be better for us, or, or if a guy's measurables at the combine are really poor. In other words, you, you watch a guy on tape and you say, I like this player. But then you, you see his measurables and they're below the level at which normally succeeds in the NFL because teams do comparisons over years and years and years. I don't quite have that kind of time. But, you know, they have a lot more people doing this. I'm one person. Right. So then in that case, if, if a measurable is way below, they might reassess and say, boy, I like this player on tape, but, you know, I just don't know if his movement skill is, is ultimately going to be good enough in our league. You know, so I think the extremes stand out. The mid-range stuff, I think you got to go back to the tape and see how a guy plays football. It's a body of work. It's a body of work over time. And... Particularly with quarterbacks, I think if you're in the quarterback market, you should be looking theoretically at as many throws and dropbacks as you possibly can. I mean, to me, if I was working for a team and and I was charged with studying the quarterbacks, you know, really studying the quarterbacks, I'd watch every throw in the guy's college career, every dropback. But as I said, the combine for teams has more to do with the interviews, getting to know players. Keep in mind, here's one other important point about the Combine. At this point, the scouts have done all their work. Their grades are in. Their evaluations are in. Now the coaches are first getting involved, and very often that changes things because scouts often, not always, not always, and this is team-specific, scouts tend to deal more in a world of measurables. I'm being very general here, but just to give a sort of Cliff Notes version, they deal in a world of measurables. Coaches deal more with adaptability to the scheme that the team runs. So, you know, John Gruden, for instance, now that he's back in the league, when he looks at a quarterback, he sees the quarterback in the context of the offense that he runs. He doesn't Yes. Does he see traits? Of course. Everybody has to start with a baseline of traits to some degree. But then ultimately, an offensive coach, a play caller, a coordinator, they think in terms of how does this particular quarterback fit in my offense? So that's what, you know, someone, John Gruden's not looking for a quarterback, but I'm just using him as an example because he did all those quarterback camps. So he sees quarterbacks in that context, as do most offensive coaches. All right, so let's talk quarterbacks. We're here. We've arrived at quarterbacks. Is that an important position, Kaz, in the league? Lately. No. All right. So uh, typically this year we're hearing of five names above all others as likely to be drafted in the first round somewhere. There's wildly varying opinions on pretty much all of them. Right. I don't think there's a consensus number one. I don't think there's a consensus number five. We are hearing different names for different teams. The veteran quarterback market is still in flux. 
there is much to be determined. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. We have Kirk so, Cousins. You yeah. have Case Keenum, who's going to be a free agent. That's all, a great point. We also have teams at the top of the first round who are in some very interesting and divergent quarterback situations. Right. From the Cleveland Browns, who have two of the top four picks and haven't found their quarterback in, in a generation plus, to the Giants, who have a pretty good quarterback on the roster, but is closer to the end than the beginning. And, and what's their attitude? How are they going into this and combine? Those are your first two picks in the draft. And I think it's fascinating because the conventional wisdom would say the Browns must draft a quarterback with the first or the fourth pick. The Browns have two of the top four picks, which is very rare. And, and, and a lot of people would say, should the Giants think about taking one last run at Eli or you know, surrounding him with as much as they can for the next two years, which maybe the new head coach, Pat Shermer, is considering doing, or do the Giants need to take this opportunity to get a quarterback right now? Really, really interesting, like potentially generationally defining decisions about well, to be made by both of those organizations. Here, here's, here's the thing with quarterbacks. Take the Browns, for instance. They're a very easy team to rip, but to me... Unless you have a really, really strong conviction, you shouldn't just take a quarterback because he's a quarterback. Now, it's easy to look back and say they blew it on Carson Wentz. That's easy because Carson Wentz has become a good player. I really liked Carson Wentz. That was one that I hit on. I I thought Carson Wentz was a really, really good prospect. Um, It's easy now to, to say, well, they should have taken Deshaun Watson. Who, who played five games or six games, and we'll get into that because that speaks to, I think, how the quarterback position has changed a bit and how players get evaluated now at the position. But if you don't have a strong, strong conviction about a quarterback, to take one that high and sort of with the idea that, oh, let's just take a quarterback because we need one, I don't think that's the right approach either. Now, like I said, we have access to some of the results, so it's easy to say they blew it and they're stupid and all that, and there's been enough written about that. But, you know, that's easy to do after the fact. This is also where ownership, if it's not careful, can get in its own way. Because you could, if you were Jimmy Haslam, you could look at what happened over these last two years and say, guys, we passed up on five right. franchise quarterbacks. I'm not making the same mistake. You're getting me a quarterback with one of these two picks. But there's a scenario with the Browns where you almost have to operate in a vacuum because if you make decisions based on what happened in the past, you're not really evaluating the reality of the situation on the ground as it exists right now. And and by that, I mean the situation on the ground right now is they have an insane amount of cap space, right, the yep. Browns? You could make a case that they should blow away the field and sign Kirk Cousins and use those picks, take Barkley with one of those picks, take another defensive stud with another pick, get themselves a couple wide receivers, make, you know, that would probably make Joe Thomas more likely to come back. They've put some offensive line pieces into place. They've had all these they've had a couple very productive drafts. They've they've got veteran offensive coordinator, veteran defensive coordinator now bringing in Haley to go with Greg Williams, which should be a very fun, volatile sideline with Hugh Jackson. <laughs> now, could you make a case that in this circumstance that they're in right now in 2018, the play is go sign Cousins. You could still get eight, ten years out of him the way quarterbacks last now. Cousins is 30. 
You could at least get is that five seasons now. Yeah, I think he's 30. Cousins is, wow, you're right. Yeah, he's, Cousins is 30. He's probably right about so, there. So let's yeah. say you could say, look, we could get six to eight yeah. years of Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins, who's in his prime. And we can build around and we could drop in a, a franchise running back right now. And we could pair a, a, a dominant, another dominant defensive piece with Miles Garrett on the other side of the ball. All right, so which raises we're jumping around here, which I think is fun instead of well, just Well, we're yeah, still talking quarterback. Yeah, but, so, but yeah. just to jump away from yeah. that for a second, so does that mean you draft a running back with the number one pick in the draft then? Oh boy. Yep, yep, you're right. By jumping around, this is a, a this is yeah. Yep, 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 yep. I'm not sure we want to go there right now <laughs> because, that, it, honest to God, the, the running back conversation is a podcast. Is it? It's we probably could do a podcast in and of itself. We, we could talk for hours about the running back position. But, but all right, let's like get back to the quarterback. Yeah. So, so here you are with Kirk Cousins, who most people would say is a quality professional quarterback, but not a top six or seven guy. Would that be fair, Cos? Yes. Okay. So now. You sign him, and the market's going to be the market. You know, you can say what you want. People always want, want to talk about the money. The market's the market. It's going to take a lot of money to sign Kirk Cousins. So you sign him. So now you've got a professional quarterback, but not a guy that most people would say is, wow, that's a special guy. You're going to have a lot of people who might say, who will say, why'd you do that? You could have drafted Sam Darnold. Well, here's why. You could front if in this circumstance, and people are talking about it with the Jets. And I'm not advocating that, by the way. Right. I'm just saying you're going to hear that. Sure, people are talking about it with the Jets, but aren't the Browns in the same boat? You could front load a big contract for Cousins to the extent that his cap hit in years three, four, five won't be as as big as a franchise quarterback normally would be, which would allow you to build around him in ways that don't require him to elevate a roster the way a, a $25 Correct. million dollar quarterback is expected to do. Correct. And there's something, again, getting back to this idea of global. To me, if you're, if you're going with the veteran quarterback, in theory, Cousins being the veteran quarterback which in our is. conversation, that changes the dynamic of, of sort of your mid-range three-year plan, right? Because... Are you not needing to sort of think you're going to keep a coach and a staff in place if you're going to draft a quarterback first overall? Well, first like, of all, what is your, what good is your investment in that guy if if yeah, Hugh Jackson's one in thirty one? They, so they've clearly committed to Hugh Jackson because most coaches that are one in fifteen and then zero in sixteen do not come back. But if he comes back and goes, it doesn't matter if he goes two and fourteen. If he goes seven and nine, if you fire him next year after having picked a guy number one. What's your return on investment potentially on that right. guy you've picked number one? And now suddenly we've all heard well, the stories of, of the of the Jason Campbells of the world who came in with all kinds of gifts and had, you know, seven coordinators in their first eight years of their right, career right. and then nobody really knows well, what happened to can them. Can I give you a flip side of that coin? Jared Goff. Year one had Fisher and his staff, they failed, they got fired. Year two, McVeigh, suddenly Jared Goff, oh, that's the Jared Goff we thought we were going to see. So there is precedent for if they if they take the quarterback and it fails, which gets and, and into Hugh, coaching, and Hugh yeah. gets fired, that doesn't mean it's a total debacle. What you don't want to get into, but that speaks and, and to Greg, needing to like but, the play. You need right, to like the player. Yeah, then. you got to say this is the guy. We believe in this guy. But but Greg, that would what you don't want to get into. Correct is this guy's had three offensive coordinators in his first three seasons. Because once you get once you go down that road, which Cousins has then, not had up to this point. Right. He's been in a very good system for him with Jay Gruden, and it'd be really interesting to see what 
Hugh Jackson does. You could make the argument that throwing a football that Kirk Cousins and Andy Dalton, who Hugh Jackson coached in Cincinnati, are similar. So Jackson has coached a quarterback with that kind of throwing skill set. Um, but the, the, the point about signing Cousins, there's two things. Number one, you know he's done it in the NFL. You're not speculating. You're not projecting. He's done it. And number two, it keeps you at one and four to, to help your team right. in other areas, which would be absolutely critical. And because you're so far under the cap, it's only money. And the cap has gone up significantly again. All right. So we've learned in the first portion of this show that, that there's a lot of considerations that go into the combine besides remembering to pack your stopwatch and your notepad to take notes. So let's drill into some of these players now and the ones who've jumped off. That we have to start right. there. Who, who's jumped off the screen in, in this first batch of the first phase of what you've, you've been reviewing? Well, again, this doesn't get into where guys will be drafted. Sure. Because, you know, I, I don't do a board, so to speak. You know, I think one player that I've absolutely loved on film, and it's a position that is never thought of as a high position, is, is Quentin Nelson from Notre Dame. And there have been two guards taken in the top 10, what, over the last, is it four or five years? I think it's been Jonathan Cooper who's moved around and finally started for Dallas this year. Um, and then Chance Warmack, who came out of Alabama as, I believe, uh, an 8 or 9 or 10 pick, initially with Tennessee, didn't quite work out, ended up being a spot player for the Philadelphia Eagles this year. So guards are not normally viewed as top 10 players. Uh, you know, now you get into the whole idea of boards versus where do you pick. Where which, was Zach Martin picked? 16th, and he was a tackle in Notre Dame. But so he, and he moved to guard. Yes, immediately, okay. and that's where the projectability comes in. He he played 52 games at left tackle, Yep. set the school record for an offensive lineman, and they drafted him and on day one moved him from left tackle to right guard. He actually, I want to Correct. talk about McGlinchey because that seemed like a little bit of the parallel potentially. But I think McGlinchey, see, this is why I love these conversations. We could go in a zillion directions here, so we'll, we'll kind of work through it. I think McGlinchey's a tackle, by the way. But anyway, getting back to Nelson. Nelson, Nelson I'm, not, I'm not ready to go last names on guys named yeah. McGlinchey yet, guys. Mike McGlinchey. We, you're way, we're not in the point of the draft process well, he's a Notre where, we Dame go, guy. where we can go McGlinchey. Who yeah. the hell's McGlinchey? You didn't watch all the Nobody Notre Dame games me. this year? Nobody told me. I'm not, I'm not prepared for McGlinchey. Can I get a first name? Mike, Mike That would McGlinchey. be Mike McGlinchey from the Philadelphia area, by the way, Cuz. All right. But anyway— um, Quentin Nelson is going to be on people's boards in the top 10, maybe in the top five. Again, does that mean he gets drafted there? That's a different question. But Quentin Nelson is a really, really strong prospect. I never use the word can't miss because I've seen too much in my 38 years here at NFL Films. But he's a really, really good prospect, and he will be high on people's boards. Whether that means he gets drafted fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, that remains to be seen. What does a guard have to do to impress people to the extent that we're using the, the adjective generational in front of well, his position? it's not so much – well, without getting into all of Nelson's traits because I think we'd get into the weeds there. Mm -hmm. I think the bigger issue is how valuable is a really good guard in the NFL? In other words, can you have a really good offense – without having high-level guards. And I think people would say you probably could. Now, does that mean you don't want good guards? Everybody wants good or good great everything. everywhere, of sure. course. But now it comes down to how you allocate your resources to do that. Do you want to pick Quentin Nelson with the sixth pick in the draft, 
when maybe there's another guard who's maybe not quite as good as Nelson, but a good prospect who you could get with the 75th pick in the draft. So it comes down to allocation of resources, which is really what this is all about. Offensive linemen, and I've, I've heard it said recently, there was just a, a profile, Jay Gruden was actually uh, quoted on this topic, and he was talking about the changes in pass offense in college have evolved to the to the point where there are fewer NFL-ready offensive linemen, Correct. just based on the scheme that they've been asked Correct. to execute for four years. How has that changed the evaluation of... of so in other words, Significantly. Are, there, are there fewer... Maybe Nelson's more valuable than he once would have it's been. It's possible. Uh, here, well, here's what you see. Because of all the true, true spreads in college, which are different than just being a three-wide receiver in the NFL. It's different. And if people tell you it's the same, they're wrong. The true spreads in college, offensive linemen never put their hand on the ground. So you get a lot of offensive linemen who come in the NFL basically having played their entire career, maybe even going back to high school more than likely, in two-point stances, standing up. They've never put their hand on the ground. They've got to be taught that. I mean, it sounds like not a big deal. It's that, a big deal. It's a big deal. Because of vision. you got to remember that. When you're just, for anybody out there, you can just kneel down, lean put over. your hand on the ground, lean over, and your worldview is pretty narrow. When you're standing up straight, you see a whole lot more. You know, it's the same issue on defense between playing outside linebacker and defensive end, and people just think it's a smooth, easy transition. The worldview is different. So you get these offensive linemen who come into the NFL who've never been in a three-point stance. So let's take this— They're they're bipeds. Interesting. Further along the evolutionary chain, <laughs> but not, but only for regular people, civilians, not football players. We that need would be tripeds right. in the NFL. So same topic, but let's transition to the more marquee position of running back, right? Because Correct. the question of if you need to spend, invest, waste depends. Your verb depends on who you are. Uh, that high pick on a guard relates just as much to. Running back. Yeah, and, and, and I think we need to get away from this idea that you can get a back anywhere because you could say that theoretically about any position. I remember reading early in, in maybe 2003, 2004 because of Tom Brady, people said, oh, you don't need to draft a quarterback early. That, that's an absurd argument. You know, the, the point is what, what you're really asking, I think, and I think this is the discussion, and Keith and I have actually had this because our offices are right across from one another, is – Again, allocation of resources. What's the value of a running back? Should a running back be taken in the first round? It doesn't matter that Kareem Hunt was a third-round pick. There's always going to be examples of that, okay? Ezekiel Elliott was a first-round pick. Leonard Fournette was a first-round pick. Adrian Peterson. Yeah, they were both taken fourth, and clearly one could make the argument that two years ago, not the suspension year, that Elliott was the driving force behind the Cowboys being 13-3, and and that Fournette was... Yes, they had a great defense, but offensively, Fournette was the driving force between that team being a playoff team and getting to the AFC Championship game. So the question is, is not, oh, you can get one in the third round, because that's a meaningless—that's uh, a waste of time argument. Right. The argument to me is, what is the value to a specific team? Are you not going to take Saquon Barkley, for instance, with the idea that, oh— Why take him? Because you can get a guy in the fourth round. So you're going to leave a guy alone who's probably going to be in your top five on your board, and you're going to leave him alone with the idea that you can get another running back in the fourth round. Um, Okay. I'm I'm going to give you you the other side. And you can disagree. I think I might. With that position in particular, 
I, th I think this might be one of the great questions of our time. Where should running backs be drafted? And how should you allocate running back resources, not only, with, not only within the, the roster, question. but within the position group on your roster? Well, that's the question. Do you go, so you can say, all right, it, 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 and you can find a running back anywhere is a BS argument. However, there is a mountain of evidence here. Um, Le'Veon Bell, second round. David Johnson, third round. Alvin Kamara, third round. Alvin Kamara is different, round. different, because he's not but a foundation back in that sense. We are talking about several right. of the top, the very best backs in the NFL. And I just mentioned All Leonard Fournette, fourth pick. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, fourth pick. Absolutely. Well, and the Super Bowl Absolutely. champions and have Todd a committee Gur Todd of running backs. And what was Todd Gurley, 14th pick? A couple of years, and, yeah. and uh, okay, so yeah, so there's examples on both. You there's have examples in you both. You have examples on both, no doubt. So now it becomes a but a decision for an organization. The other, my point was is that it's not a black and white issue. Well, well but the other question on allocation of resources is if you take a running back in the top five, you are heavily invested in that player because his his salary is going to be much bigger, and this is the question. You know the Steelers face right now are with with. Do you franchise Le'Veon again? Do you pay him a? a do, do you sign him to a long term deal at fifteen million dollars a year after watching a Super Bowl where the Eagles and Patriots combined to have what seven running backs who who whose total salary isn't fifteen million dollars? <laughs> I mean, so th that particular position group, like you said, Greg, is. What is the value of a running back? I think you have to put the Patriots and within that position. Group. I think you have to put the Patriots aside because of the quarterback. You're dealing with a, sure. with a true okay. all timer, and and an elite, elite, high level quarterback. And so I think that makes the Patriots different. But talk about the Eagles because they even had injuries to their to the <laughs> the guys who were there week one. They right, had injuries, and they still persevered and found more guys plugged them in and and again in the Super Bowl they're playing at least three at least three running backs and I agree the you're, ball. Gonna, you're going to hear that argument and it's it's uh, you you can't refute it sure. because they won so yes so all all I was saying is that there's no it's not a mathematical equation you can make arguments on both sides and then it comes down to teams approach schemes how how you see it um but to say that I'm not going to take Saquon Barkley or I'm not going to take Ezekiel Elliott because of some sort of mathematical equation that says, well, you don't take a running back high or even in the first round, I, I don't think do, that's a good you, way to wait, go. Wait, do you think that there are teams who do say, we're just never going to draft a running back with a top five pick that just runs counter to our philosophy, and it's just not a it's just not a proper valuation of that asset. I because I think there might be teams who do feel that way that just say there are like the year Zeke got picked with the fourth right, pick. Right. Who, who was the next pick? I don't remember. I believe it was Jalen Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, well, he was drafted after Zeke. So the well, no wait was when he was drafted third. No, Ramsey was drafted after Zeke. He was. Hold on, let's go to the let's go to the phones. Well, I, but I understand your point. Rich, You're, who got drafted first, I, Zeke or, or Ramsey? I un understand your point. I think your point is that what is the value? Which position is a higher premium in today's NFL? Is is that your point? Yeah, I screamed from the rooftop at the time. Right, Zeke might be the best running back in the NFL. I'd still take the corner a hundred times out of a hundred <laughs> if you think they're both. 
elite, elite talents, well, you have to take the corner. It, I think a franchise think, lockdown corner is just so much more valuable in the NFL than a than And, a and I think back. most people would agree with you. I think that if you looked at positions that are placed at a premium, I think you'd say that there are three that are absolutely necessary. Quarterback, pass rusher, and corner. I think that those three positions would probably be viewed at the highest premium well, in the NFL. The pass not, game. Not, the pass game. Well, not, and, not and then, left tackle. And then tackle. Left tackle, yeah. Which is another conversation. See, this is why I love Hold this. Hold on. We have an answer from Rich. There you go. Zeke at four, Ramsey at five. So, so again. So, that, they went right one after the other. That's a fascinating point. Now, the Cowboys were 13-3 and three with Zeke being the, the workhorse of not only their offense, but you can make the argument their entire team because they controlled sure. the pace and tempo of games and their defense played fewer snaps. So again, all I was trying to say is this is not a black and white mathematical equation issue. It's not like saying two and two is four. It's, it's different for teams, organizations, and approaches. But just getting to the tackle position because Paul's right. For a number of years, people would have put left tackle in that premium position, and it's still thrown out as gospel when you watch college tackles on tape, college left tackles who don't have great feet. The immediate response is, oh, he's a right tackle. But here's the problem. NFL now, defenses, there's more and more and more pass rushers who line up on the left side of the defense, the right side of the offense, and defenses scheme more and more and more that, to me, the delineation between left tackle and right tackle does not hold water anymore. Right. We talked about if you play in the AFC West— And you're going to face Khalil Mack and Von Miller who line up on the left side of the defense, meaning they go against the right tackle. And Joey Boza. And right? Joey Boza. Yeah, there you go. So who's more important? Your le- or equally, Are they not equally important, right. your left tackle and your so right tackle? I don't, I don't think that argument, Kaz, holds water. And the other reason I don't is the nature of pass games in the NFL have changed. Much more quick game, much more timing rhythm, not as many deeper drops where you're asking a left tackle to block on an island one-on-one for three-plus seconds. So I think the game has changed, and I think this automatic gospel statement that— uh, uh, oh, it's a left tackle is more important. I don't think that holds water anymore. All right, so let we've talked philosophy, but but just before we turn the page on those two, since they've been as talked about as anybody, just give us the guru take on Barkley and Nelson. And I'm not asking you to say right. where they're going to get picked. We've talked about the global nature of this whole game, but those two guys, those athletes, what have you seen? Well, Nelson is as good a run blocker as I can recall seeing watching coaching tape, and not that I've done it for 50 years or anything, but... I think Nelson's as good a run blocker as I've ever seen at the guard position. He's he's a very good pass protector as well. His awareness is remarkable. I don't know if you guys—people can probably go find this play on YouTube, but he had a block against Georgia. The Georgia game. Finding which, work, they call which it. Which was just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's as good as I've ever seen. He's the left guard, and there was a blitzer, and it was a defensive back, and those guys come with speed. And he didn't have a man specifically to block based on the front. And how he saw this guy coming from the opposite side of the formation, I have no idea. But he just laid him out. I mean, it was as as good as you'll ever see. So Nelson is a high, high high-level prospect. Barkley's a fascinating player to me. Barkley's a social media sensation because of his weightlifting and his body type. And he's an odd runner in the sense that 
given how powerfully built he is, he's not a power runner. He looks for daylight. He's a dancer. He's, there are runs where he looks like Barry Sanders because he's really more of a dancer and an, a laterally explosive guy. He's not a power runner. Um, he's just a really put-together guy who, you know, we've all seen the body type, um, and he can catch the football. So he fits today's NFL because he's a very good receiver, and he can detach from the formation. He's not as good a receiver as Alvin Kamara, but he's a good receiver. He returned kicks as well. He did. Not that he did. who knows if he'll do it in the NFL, but I mean, in terms of being an explosive athlete. He has an explosive dimension to his game, clearly. Yeah. How's his receiving? Really good. He's a good receiver. That's that's why he fits the profile. Now, I would argue that he's a better prospect than Fournette. I do not believe he's as good a natural runner as Ezekiel Elliott. Is Nelson? Let's not forget. You know, I don't want to keep circling, but Ezekiel Elliott was drafted to a team again. Zach Martin was a first round pick. Tyron Smith is there. Travis Frederick. Well, a, a quality offensive but line. But the you point is, the is they, that's the way they chose to build Correct. their team. So drafting a back there made sense for them. That that's my point. Is it's not a black and white issue. Okay, we can debate, and I'm not disagreeing with Kaz about the value in a, in a just abstract platitudinous sense of corner versus back. But every team sees themselves a certain way and sees themselves differently. I love your mention, though, of Barkley's pass receiving being a a critical factor because when we talked about the important positions, if you want to rank them, it was, you said quarterback, corner, pass rusher, tackle— all not not in, in you know well, but quarterback yes would always be number one. The but, notion yeah. is the pass game is, is a driver. Correct. So a running back who has to fit into that system right. again, it's just another consideration that has to be evaluated when you when you look at these guys. Is Nelson bipedal or tripedal <laughs> coming into the NFL? I'm making a list with that and platitudinous. By the way, this is a, this is a, this is a high level SAT. He's Tyrannosaurus Rex. Pod we have gone. I'm not serious. Did it, does Notre Dame play? No, one he, of the... yeah, he he put his hand on the ground. All he's right. a mauler, Keith. Right, he's yeah. ready. You want me to yeah. sing the fight he's song? He's ready. He's got the vision to take out the Georgia guy with his hand on the ground. That well, is that was a... a pass play, but that was remarkable. All right, all right. Let's talk. We got to do it. Let's talk quarterbacks. Yeah. Uh, the big name. There are big names, of course. Right. Darnold. Right. Rosen. Jackson, break it down, Cosell. Well, Baker let, Mayfield. Baker Mayfield. Let's start. The guy from Wyoming whose name I can't Josh remember. Allen. Josh Allen. Let's start the with- um, five. Let's hear it. Let's start with Jackson just for a moment and get into the changing, and Mayfield fits into this as well to some degree, the changing nature of NFL offense. And obviously people say it's now college stuff. And and of course there's carryover. It's, it's football. There's carryover. Um, but- I look at Lamar Jackson, and obviously a number of weeks ago, one of the people that everybody respects, and he's a friend of mine, Bill Polian, you know, made the point about receiver. And then he, he sort of clarified, and it made perfect sense if you read the full statement. All right, so let's just but, lay it. What did he say? Well, he basically said that he should start now to, to transition to receiver, okay, which, again— Bill, I have tremendous respect for him. He certainly knows more than I do. Hall I just, of Famer, Bill Polian. I disagree yes. with that, but but my point is this. Think of what Bill O'Brien did with Deshaun Watson for those five or six games in Houston. He basically put him in the gun. He spread the formation. He did a lot of the the RPO stuff, the, the you know, the shotgun run actions, you know, all those things that we associate with college football. I think when you look at Lamar Jackson, to me, I do not see why he can't be put into a similar offense and be effective. Now, 
Do you want him to run as much? No, because his body type is he's a thinner guy. I've been around Lamar Jackson. He's a thinner guy. But the reality is that running element is a factor. He's certainly not built like Cam Newton, but but Cam Newton runs enough where that's a factor. I think you could put Lamar Jackson in an offense like that. And again, I'm not suggesting week one, and that's, you know, who knows? Again, now it gets down to 10 different variables, which are not even worth discussing. But I think there's no reason Lamar Jackson can't be effective in that style of offense. Has Lamar Jackson, you know, watching him on tape, um, have you been surprised at anything? Have you, you know, has he exceeded your expectations? You know, what? Well, I don't know what things. your expectations were going in. <clears throat> a couple of things. Seen? Number one, Bobby Petrino's offense, the pass game concepts are very NFL founded. So Lamar Jackson is very familiar with NFL pass game concepts and route combinations. This will not be something that's foreign to him that he has to start from scratch to learn. Secondly, while there were plays here and there where I do think he dropped his eyes and looked to run, I would say overall, and I watched him in 2016 and in 2017, I do not believe he just looks to run. I think he looks to deliver the football. And while I think he needs some work, I think his accuracy needs some work. I think he needs some lower body work on his fundamentals. I think he tends to throw with a very thin base and keep his feet too close together. That's theoretically coachable. Usually lower body mechanics can be coached. Very difficult to change the way a guy throws a football, but you can teach lower body mechanics. Uh, So I don't think Lamar Jackson is just a guy that takes off and runs. I think Lamar Jackson has a feel for the pass game concepts and is willing to throw the ball. And how is his throwing of the ball? He's a good thrower. As I said, accuracy is you'd like his his ball placement to be more consistently precise. Whether that can be corrected, that's a concern. That's a definite concern because if it can't be corrected and he remains erratic with his accuracy, then he'll struggle. And as, as we said, accuracy is maybe the critical factor in determining the elite from the next rung of, of NFL quarterbacks? It's really critical because as we've probably discussed before, you can do everything right. You can read the defense. You can go through your progressions. You can do all the, the things that people talk about. But if you can't put the ball where you want to, then you don't have a whole lot. Rosen. Rosen is probably the most refined quarterback prospect. Uh, he's definitely the most refined in this group. Surprised you went Rosen number two there, Paul. Well, I was just—I'm not—I'm not ranking yeah. him to be no, clear. No, no, I'm just surprised that was the next one that yeah. popped off. He's—he's—he's he's, he's really refined. Now he has really good repetitive mechanics. Um, I like that repetitive mechanics. Yeah, he's consistency he's, essentially. Oh, we, love, we love repetitive mechanics. Good jargon Paul. here. Yeah, he's he's really strong in that area. He's he's got a feel for the subtleties and the nuances of the position. He plays with discipline within the pocket. I think there's a couple of concerns with him. While he's a good athlete and he can get out of the pocket. I think his pocket movement within the pocket needs work. And I think he, with him, you're a little concerned about the potential for taking too many hits uh, because he will stand there, which there's a, there's a balance there. Standing and waiting to deliver abstractly is very good. The question is, what's the price you pay for that? Greg, I remember there was a day you came in 
to the office on a Monday a couple years ago. It was when Rosen was a freshman, and you had seen a Rosen game on TV. On TV, and said, "I love this." Well, kid. because I like the way he plays. Right. You just there was you rarely he come in. He looks like an NFL quarterback. Yeah, you yeah. you were effusive about yeah. him in ways that you usually aren't before getting a chance right. to study a guy. And how has he uh, progressed? Not like ha- having now had a chance to watch him for two years, study him. What, where is he based on what you expected at that point? Oh, I think he's he, – that's the kind of quarterback he is, Kaz. I mean, I, I look at a, at a Josh Rosen and I think to myself, he's in the sort of Matt Ryan, Jared Goff quarterback, you know, stylistically, okay? Um, he might be a little better thrower than, than both those guys, Um as I said, my biggest concern with him is just the pocket, you know, because he's a guy that's willing to stand and deliver. And like I said, normally that I would view that as a positive, but there is a, a risk factor there for how much you get hit. You talked about the combine is as much as anything about getting to know the players, meeting the players, filling right. in some of those gaps. In 2018, with the 22-year-old who was, ra- who was you know, raised in a different generation than even the, the Tom Brady's and Mannings were— and this is just your take. This is not from the tape, Greg. Does anyone care about what Josh Rosen does on social media? Do the do the clubs just 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 from talking to guys? I'm just interested in your. I've your been take around. Jo- I've talked to Josh Rosen. I've does been around. Does that matter? Him. Well, that's when you have to get to know the kid. You know that, and you have to decide that. The thing with Josh Rosen, he's incredibly smart. He's thoughtful. He's well read. He's, you know, he's not. I don't want to say other quarterbacks are stupid. That's not the point. But Josh Rosen comes from a very strong family. His father was up for attorney general at one point. His mother is a journalist. You know, he grew up in a household where learning, being curious, expressing an opinion that's, that's well-founded and well-based in, in, in reading was important. That's the kind of kid he is. Now, there will be some people that might turn them off because he's willing, very willing to express his point of view. Uh, speaking of personality, Baker Mayfield sometimes yeah. get, gets a gets a rap because there, there's a there's a, a general impression out there that there's elements of of Johnny Football that scare people with Baker. Mayfield. And I can only speak to the tape because right. I, I don't sure. know. So I'll get yeah. to be Baker Mayfield at the Maxwell dinner in a few weeks, but it's not as if I'm going to you know know him. But but a lot of people have said you should party with really, Baker Mayfield. Yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna do the town. That will yeah. be a good next pod if you can AC. go out with Baker Mayfield and yeah. come back That's and report. A, a big night in AC. I like with it. Baker Mayfield. With Baker Mayfield yeah. and Cosell. You expense it to this pod, Greg. I okay. Think we and you know what our budget is. So. Are we, you gonna follow us around? I, think, I think we should shoot that. That's a piece. We're <laughs> gonna be doing shots of tequila. <laughs> uh, okay, so Baker Mayfield. People love talking about Baker Mayfield. Let's, uh, I, let's hear your I liked him far more on tape, and I don't want to say that I thought I would because I don't know what I thought I would, but there was certainly cause a perception about him that he was kind of a runaround guy. Yep. And while he does have that element to his game, I made it a point to, in addition to doing all the other things I said at the top of the podcast about what I do with quarterbacks— I made it a point to really look carefully at his 15-plus-yard plays because I was curious to see how he made them. If, if a good number of them, a good percentage, were runaround plays, that would have made me think, well, yeah, you can do that once in a while in the NFL, but here's what really surprised me. My biggest takeaway from watching those maybe 125, 130, 15-plus-yard plays 
was how few of them were outside of structure and improvisational, how many of them were within the timing and rhythm and structure of the offense. And that really made me go kind of, wow, this guy plays with timing, with rhythm, with structure. Now, having said that, I went through all the third downs as well, and Oklahoma, for some reason, it's not just all Baker Mayfield, Oklahoma got blitzed a ton on third down. He struggled with that a lot. Now, like I said, that's not just him necessarily, but that's something that in the NFL he's going to get pressure. How have the metrics maybe come back to Baker Mayfield in terms of the NFL's evaluation of a guy's height? Uh, all, All those factors, we keep talking about how that system that we're trying to project him into is a really critical part of this. His just dimensions, how do they right. fit into, tw- again, 2018, yep. maybe the way they wouldn't have 20 years ago? The nature of pass games, and I mentioned this earlier, a lot more quick game, three-step drop, quick five-step drop, a lot more timing rhythm in the pass game, a lot more throws under 10 yards from the line of scrimmage, which by its very nature means that the ball's coming out quicker. So the shortness of height, and he was just over six feet, is not as relevant for many. They'll, they'll always be old school guys who will say, hey, we don't want a quarterback under 6'2". That's just the way it goes. There'll be some guys like that. There always are. And there's no right or wrong here. It's, it's, it's a philosophy. Much of this is a philosophy. Football, you can win a lot of different ways. So a lot of this becomes philosophy, not mathematical equations. Well, and I love your quote. It's Bill Parcells, right? You know, you know I love it. You said, uh, you can't make your living on exceptions. On exceptions. So you have to sort of, you have to establish at least right. your philosophy Everybody your has baselines. Right. Everybody has baselines, no question. Um, you know, there's teams that say that, hey, we don't want a corner under six feet, or we don't want, you know, offensive linemen, a big conversation is always arm length. We don't want offensive linemen with arms shorter than 33 inches. You know, there's, there's different parameters for different positions, but... To me, Baker Mayfield is a really good prospect, and I, I liked him a lot on tape. I, I really liked him. All right, he's a very accurate thrower of the football, by the way, and that that bodes well. Bodes really well. Bodes that's really right. well. That's been Drew Brees' calling card. Another undersized yeah. passer all these years is accuracy. All right, two more of the big five to go. You can pick which one you want to take first: Josh Allen, Sam or D- Darnold. Darnold. Let's do Allen first. Allen can throw the ball really hard. I mean, he's a big-time power thrower of the football. Huge arm. Huge arm. I know Mike Mayock said this week that he hadn't seen an arm like that since Jamarcus Russell. And he's just talking about the arm. He's not comparing him to Russell. The thing about Allen is, yes, he does have that arm, and he's 6'4", plus 237, 240, with unbelievable movement. Um but he doesn't really have touch or pace on a lot of throws, and he hasn't been very accurate. Now, he's a wow splash player. If you were to put on the best 25 plays of Josh Allen, which theoretically you could do with anyone, I understand that. I'm just saying with Josh Allen, they look extra special. They, they're wow. He's that kind of guy. Elements that you can't coach. Correct. You're talking about natural gifts. He made a throw. It was actually last year in 2016. I forget who it was against where he rolled out to his left and he threw the ball maybe 55 yards down the field, literally into the corner of the end zone where he had a foot to place the ball. He put it in that foot. Now, he can make those kinds of plays. He needs to be coached hard. 
He needs an offensive system. I think of the McVeighs, the Shanahans. Obviously, they're not drafting him, but that a system where everything is really precisely defined, where there's not a lot of room for the quarterback to have to think through the progressions, where it's really well defined as to where you throw the football based on the route concepts. He needs that. It's interesting. I'm just looking at the teams. And the one that pops out at me, listening to you talk about Allen, is the Broncos. Well, he's he's theoretically he sounds John like Elway, yeah. and and you'll know the I I you know this too. I don't mean to say Paul, yeah. you won't know it, but I know Kaz is definitely on. People forget that early in John Elway's career, and obviously they won games, okay, for a lot of reasons, but for Elway's nine, first nine or ten years, and people can yeah. look this up. He threw just as many interceptions as touchdowns. Hmm. He was not a high percentage thrower. He was maybe 56, 57 percent. He made spectacular plays, no question. We, the talent, you know, everybody said there's been no one like him, and the talent jumped off the film, but he was not a consistent player. No, he, it required Shanahan's tutelage to almost harness. Correct. LA and that's bit. when he became over a 60 percent thrower. That's right. when the touchdowns became you know, 25, 26, and the interceptions dropped to 10 or 11. You know, Josh Allen has that kind of physical talent. And El- but Elway's talent was so extraordinary that he took th- three Super Bo- t- three teams to Super Bowls before he even really knew how to play. That's what I was going to say. He's so in the gifted. Super Bowl in his third year. Uh, but keep one thing in mind. They also had a really, really good defense back yep. in those days. Now, yeah. again, t- that takes nothing away what? from Elway, but it gets into team composition sure. as well. Which, by the way, the Broncos have right now. Now, the Broncos already have spent right. a first-round pick on a project quarterback, which has not and, paid and, off. And mm-hmm. Allen's going to be compared to Lynch. I don't think they're as similar as people might think, but that comparison will be made. All right. One Darnold. More, one more quarterback. Darnold's fascinating because he looks the part. 6'4", 225. I'm sure he'll be right around there at the Combine. Um, good arm. I wouldn't say he's got a gun. Good arm. Good enough to do whatever it's needed. Excellent athlete. Really good mobility. Um, at times, he's a mess with his mechanics, mm. uh, both lower body and he throws the way he throws. That's not going to dramatically change. Um, there are times he throws and, and the ball does come out quick. There's other times where that elongated delivery does show up because that's kind of a natural way for him to throw. Um, he wasn't as accurate as I would have liked to have seen this given year. Uh, he's a little undisciplined in his play. I would the way I would describe him, just sort of you know, I guess street lingo. It's he's more of a baller than a technician, hmm. and he needs to become more of a technician, playing with a little more nuance and discipline that the position at the NFL level requires. Snap after snap after snap. I think he can get there. I don't think that he's a guy who's who's can't get there. Uh, he's working with Jordan Palmer, Carson's brother. Jordan works with quarterbacks. Does an unbelievable job. I talked to Jordan at the Super Bowl. And he kept telling me, hey, Darnold's going to be great. You, you mark my word. So, uh, you know, I haven't been around Sam Darnold. I'm just going by what the tape shows, and he needs work. Uh, all right. Can you think of an example of a quarterback who has made that leap where you say, where we, 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 we make this, we, we start with this caveat? I'm not saying he can't get there. But there's a lot of work to do. And it, it almost, you know, maybe Blake Bortles, we talked about like that when he came out. Name me a quarterback 
who made that leap, who made that progression, who got nuanced, well, who who refined his mechanics. I think that some people would argue that that Darnold is comparable to two players who one was a number one pick and one was a number three pick. You mentioned Bortles, who had issues with his throwing. It's not changed at all. He's got that really bad delivery. Um, now, again, without knowing either guy well enough to comment, I can't speak to other factors. But Bortles would be one guy some might compare Darnold to. And and it's easy now to say Bortles isn't very good, but he was the third pick in a draft. Yeah. Okay. The other guy whose game lacks some discipline and still does after three years is Jameis Winston. And I think that you could make somewhat reasonable comparisons between Winston and Darnold because both guys are talented. Both guys have, you know, from what I hear, I mean, Winston's personality is more out there, but I hear Darnold is a good guy. Um, you know, Winston, after three years, he's had some really good moments. He's not been on a really good team. He's been on a team with bad, bad defense, which changes the whole dynamic for a quarterback. But Winston has remained a somewhat loose, undisciplined player without a real grasp of the nuance and subtleties of the position, even though I bet he intellectually gets them. Darnold strikes me somewhat similar. I bet if you spoke with Sam Darnold, he would be very good and he would understand it. But there's a looseness to his play that needs to be cleaned up. And with Winston, there's nobody accusing Winston of not loving the game, of not being dedicated. No, he no. He works hard. He gets it. He's smart. All Everything you the, want a quarterback, the question but, but is, those is that issues it, are still there. The question after, is, after is it in his DNA? Right. And is it in Darnold's that, DNA? That's, why, that, that's hard to know. That's, that's hard to know. And that's why I asked the question. Like, we put so much on coaches. You know, this guy, he could get there, but he's going to need right. this. He's got to well, refine that's why his mechanics. coaching is so like, important. Like, you got to... It's you, you such a hard position. Do you really want to put that burden on a coaching staff that not only do we have to get... This, not only do we have to do all the coaching to make this guy great, we also have to do some remedial stuff just to get his mechanics to a point. But where you, you, you well, nailed that's it. The, that's the job, though, yeah. to a certain extent. Well, no, you, no, but the job is hard enough if you don't have to do that. But, Kaz, you nailed it. You look at, you know, again, you know me well enough to know I don't rip coaches. The evidence is here for all to see. You look at the difference from Jared Goff to year one, year two. That's coaching. Okay, that's Sean McVay and right. staff. Right. And Matt LaFleur, who's now the OC in um, Tennessee, and I'm so anxious to see what he does with Marcus Mariota, who needs some retooling as well. Right. So, uh, you know, I, that's where coaching comes in. Right. And look, I was so, so fortunate, uh, you know, and, and you guys know this, but I just it, it fits the conversation, okay? I was so fortunate to have spent a number of times with Bill Walsh. And that's where my worldview of the quarterback position really started and where I learned, you know, you're trying to make quarterbacks, it's perfection is what you're searching for. Now, we know that there's not perfection, okay? But that's how you have to coach it. The quarterback position should never be seen as, oh, he's a playmaker. Sure, is that a nice trait to have? And we all know that there are times in games, you know, Kaz is a Steelers fan. How many times has Roethlisberger made playmaker plays? But that's not the way you teach and coach the position, nor should it be taught and coached that way. It's a position of discipline, of nuance. You never roll the ball out and say, hey, guys, today let's just go out and make some plays. That's not the way you do it. We don't evaluate the other positions that way. So, yeah. So why would we do one, it with quarterbacks? One thing I always remember Greg telling me is after Wentz and Goff got drafted, 
It was early in their rookie seasons. And Greg said, look at what the Eagles surrounded Carson Wentz with. Um, yep. Peterson, an op- a former NFL quarterback. An offensive coordinator. And an offensive coordinator. Um, Reich. Reich, former NFL quarterback. And an offensive coordinator. An offensive coordinator. Filippo, veteran. He was a veteran. Quarterback coach, coach and an offensive coordinator in the NFL. Three guys. And then look at what the, the Rams surrounded Goff with his rookie year. A, a first-time quarterback coach in the NFL and a, and a coordinator who'd never been a coordinator at who, any level. Who had been a tight end coach, Boris. Yeah. That and means something. Nothing that against, means yeah, something. Nothing against, and, and the head coach is a defensive head coach, so right. he wasn't going to be hands-on with Goff either. And we saw the results. And then we saw the Rams correct. And surround him. They got a head coach who was a quarterback coach, like you said, an offensive coordinator. Or was LaFleur the LaFleur, quarterback? Yes, coach he, the, he the, was technically the quarterback coach, you know, because, and I don't know whether he had the OC title, but because obviously it was Sean's offense. But LaFleur had been with Shanahan in, uh, um, I believe, both in Houston and Washington. So he comes from that. There's a lot of closeness with the McVeigh-Shanahan school of thought. LaFleur had also been at Notre Dame for one year when Kaiser was a young player. So much of this. Did you know that? I remember him being there on the staff, but he was— There's been a lot of change in yeah, that staff, yeah. so, I, so, so I didn't know what his role was. I, I mean, my point is so much of, of of how this all shakes out with these five quarterbacks. It's going to be coaching and and where they go. Correct. It's a lot of it is going to yeah. be where these. It's going to be surroundings. It's going to be environment, and some of them are going to fight through it. And there might be a restart. A coach could get fired, but you know, Cleveland s- supplemented Hugh Jackson with Todd Haley here. And, and added a veteran guy who's worked with a lot of quarterbacks, a lot of really good quarterbacks, so that if they do go that route, they might be set up a little bit better for success at that position than they've been in the past. And that's why the Giants and Colts fascinate me so much. And we right. don't know what the deal is right. with Andrew exactly. Locke, but in theory— I don't think they're going to take a quarterback at three. You don't? No. Because I think what they're going to do, their defense was so bad last year, they brought in the, uh, the, the Dallas uh, linebacker coach— who has been high e- on people? Eberflus. Eberflus. Who's been, I think, high on people's list for a number of years. He's going to switch to a four-three. I'd be very surprised if they if Bradley Chubb they're, is not off the they're board. They're not giving up on Luck yet. Yeah. They're not, no, no. Well, way. they're not. The Giants aren't necessarily giving up on Manning yet either. But you don't want to draft in the top five. So when you're I'd there, I'd be very, very surprised. It if, changes if your if thought the Giants, process. Maybe I'd be very surprised if the Giants take a quarterback at two. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Hold on. Unpack. What does that mean? Why? Because I think that Pat Shermer is really, really good at defining quarterbacks' reads and throws, and I think Eli still can play, and I don't think Shermer—I think they believe that they can compete. Don't forget, they're only a year removed from being in the playoffs. This is not a team like the Browns that's been 1-31. in They're a team removed, one year removed from being in the playoffs. Shermer's coming off a Vikings team that— got to the NFC Championship game, I don't think, I don't want to say they'd waste a pick at two because no one would, if they took a quarterback at two, they wouldn't view it as wasting sure. a pick. It would be well thought out. But I think that they probably feel that they could be back to a 10-win team this year. I totally agree, but Eli's in what, year 15? And and he's had incredible longevity. Forget the fact that they benched him for that. That doesn't matter. He hasn't missed a game. He's right. had consistency. He's got some years left. Now the, que- the qu- but you go back to the the, the here's gi- the question. The here's the question. Rogers which these situation. Teams, the here's chi- the question. Teams do which I I just don't 
really have the time to do right. with what I do, is they're looking ahead to next year's draft, to the draft after that. Right. They're looking at quarterbacks down. You know, if they truly believe that next year there's no quarterbacks, I mean, there's always quarterbacks, but you know what I'm saying, yep. quarterbacks worthy, then who knows? They could pull the trigger at a quarter on a quarterback because they might feel that, hey, yeah, we might be able to get a year, two years out of Eli, but then we're really going to get stuck. But, but, I don't but know the Eli, answer to that. But with Eli, and this is all theoretical, now we can take Sam Darnold and we can have the patience and the time to right. work through what we feel we can work through Correct. to get him to where he needs it, to be. And, it's, and it goes back to what you just said, too. If you're the Giants, the idea is let's never be in this position again. Right. But the the fact that we are in this position, if there's a quarterback we love, this is our chance to have another. What you don't want to do is wander in the quarterback wilderness for 10 years after the, Eli's done. Yeah, and the other issue is, because they do need a back, is how they feel about the backs in this draft. It's easy to say, oh, Saquon Barkley's there. That's easy, okay? Anybody can say that. But they may look at the backs in this draft, and maybe they feel like there's five worthy backs. No. See, we don't know. Well, and not, No, honestly. And they may no. feel, hey, in the second round, we could get a back you know, who we feel we could line right. Maybe they feel Sony Michelle, who I loved on tape, okay? They may feel, hey, Sony Michelle, in our mind, is going to be there at uh, whatever, you know, 34, you know, whatever they pick. And, and we're going to draft Sony Michelle, and this way we're going to get Sam Darnold and Sony Michelle. All right, we've talked about Nelson and Barkley, the guys who everyone's talking about, especially connected to the debate of what their value is. We've talked about the quarterbacks, and again, they're they're connected to a different side of the value debate. Let's cleanse our palates with a little bit of Sam Spence. And when we come back, talk about Sony Michelle and the list of players that Greg has been really impressed with that maybe not everybody's talking about uh, as he packs up and gets ready to head out to the Circle City. Right, Greg's got to go. So we got we got we got <laughs> one more little section here. Let's let's let, we'll wrap it up with Greg's guys that we all need to know about. Latter day Sam Spence, Paul. This is when Sam Spence came back. Came back from where? In the Keith? twenty, in the after the turn of the millennium, he hadn't written music for us in decades. This piece was written after Gladiator came out, and Hans Zimmer's score for Gladiator was so tremendous. Wow! See, Greg, this is the good stuff. Liner notes, right this there. This is baby. what people came to hear. All right, let's get back to it. Sony Michelle. I really like Sony Michelle on tape a lot. Um, and I, you know, to me, he can be a so-called feature back. Now, feature back is one of those relative terms. It, it you know, it depends on your worldview of what a feature back is. I mean, clearly, the Jaguars' offense ran through Leonard Fournette. Clearly, two years ago, and it would have happened again this year without the suspension. The Cowboys' offense runs through Ezekiel Elliott. Is Sony Michelle exactly that guy? I mean, let me ask you this. Would you guys say that the Rams offense ran through Todd Gurley as a runner? He was a very good receiver, but as a runner. I don't know if I'd say it in the same way of Fournette and, his, and Zeke. The touches ran through Todd Gurley is how I feel like I'd broaden but it, it out. it felt too. like they, what they did is they figured out how to use Todd Gurley. Right. And get so him the so ball again, in, my in point a, is, is space. I, I think Sony Michelle could fall, fall more into the Gurley thing where your offense isn't running through him necessarily, where it has to start there, but that he's clearly a foundation piece. Gurley's fascinating, too, and we're not going to get stuck on him, but remember, 
Gurley was coming off a major knee injury. Yep. You talk about vision and plan and what you can see in a guy. We forget that now because he's been not just productive, but prolific in terms of the amount of times he's carried the ball. He's been right. a workhorse. Right. Uh, and they obviously saw that potential in and him. And workhorse saw- is a relative term as well. I mean, you know, so again. He's, he's touched the ball a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Sony Michelle is a back I really, really liked on tape, and, and obviously, uh, you know, I don't know where he's going to get drafted because that, without repeating our whole running back argument, that becomes a team thing. Do- Go ahead. Who else? Well, there's a name. Sony Michelle might is in the running for best name in the draft, 2018. <laughs> also in the running potentially. Leighton oh, Vander Esch. Love this guy on tape. Give he's, me Vander Esch. He's a linebacker from Boise State. Okay, he's. I don't know what his height and weight will be at the combine, but just seeing the tape, my guess is he'll be about 6'4", 240. He's really athletic. He can play, as as I like to say, inside out with, with sideline to sideline range and great play speed. He's really good in pass coverage. Um my initial thought watching him was he was a Carlos Dansby kind of player. And I don't want to go to Luke Keekley because I don't think, you know, I'm not there yet. But this, and I may never get there with him, but this this is a linebacker I really, really like. And because of his three-down ability, he fits today's game. You will not have to take this guy off the field. He's a good blitzer. So, you know, I, it would not surprise me at all if Leighton Vander Esch gets into the first round. And he's only a one-year starter, so he's got a learning curve here. And to use the vernacular, which I guess now everybody's going to use, is he's got a he's got a high ceiling, Paul. Upside, Greg? Got upside. Good upside. I feel like it would be a real win for the NFL if we had a stud linebacker named Vander Esch. Who else is on Gre- Greg's pop list? Well, there's there's... What's your guys' view of the tight end position in the NFL? How important do you think it is these days? Pretty important. Cause? I think you could value it if you can get a guy who is dominant at that position. Are you thinking in terms of as a pass catcher? Is that now where the position well, is? Creating yeah. mismatches so right, in offense. Right That's now how I I'm think thinking, about it. There is a level of player who is very – there's probably only three of them at any one time in the NFL and, and start with Gronk. If you think you can get a guy at that level, definitely worth a, a high, high pick. Otherwise, if you're saying this guy is going to be a terrific tight end, he's an A-plus blocker, he can get you 80 catches. He's not a downfield game-breaking threat. I would not be in a hurry to draft that player in the first round. What do you? Where would you put Travis Kelsey in that conversation? I would put him as one of the three guys who can define an offense. Who can? He is. He is an elite playmaker in the NFL, and he's also. Now, this is. He's a great blocker too, is he not? He's a good blocker. Yeah, good I mean, blocker. Yeah. All right. So he's it's a good blocker, a but he's a dominant <clears throat> right. playmaker. So I would put if, – if Travis Kelsey was in this draft, I would say he's worthy of a top 15 pick for We're sure. We're past the point in today's NFL where tight ends will be drafted because of how they block. Right. Now, you want them to be able to block. I'm not saying you want them to be bad, but you're not drafting a tight end with a value pick. You know? right. You're not going to allocate right. a, a meaningful pick because of the way a tight end blocks. So do you got no, – You want them to make plays in the offense. The, uh, there's t- a guy I really like from South yeah. Carolina named, named Hayden Hurst who – He'll be 25 when he enters the NFL, and that'll turn some people off because he's he's a, spent two years in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization as a pitcher and first baseman. Well, if he couldn't make it there, I don't, I don't know. I got questions. 
More Pittsburgh scars. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I really, I, he's very athletic. Um, I, again, I believe you can line him up anywhere in the formation. I, I think, which he did at South Carolina. Uh, am I ready to sit here and tell you he's Travis Kelsey? No. But could he evolve into something like that is down he, the road? Is he Tyler Eifert? Who, by the way, could have been in one of those guys without all those yeah, injuries. Yeah, too many injuries. Yeah. Well, but, but yeah. before the injuries, he, he, he was the he, 20th pick in the draft. He made a lot yes. of plays for the Bengals. Uh, Eifert was really good. And, and, really good. and it's funny you mention that. That's a good name, Paul, because he made a lot of plays lined up as what we call ex-ISO, where he was the single receiver to the boundary, particularly in the red zone, and he'd beat corners. Yeah, I remember him making, making dynamic plays in college and then being the guy when he got to the NFL— I barely remember him blocking at all. He, he might yeah. be a great blocker. I don't know. I just remember being a downfield pass catcher. That's why he was there. Well, let me throw out a name to you. I mentioned Travis Kelsey. Where would you put Zach Ertz in this conversation, guys? Mm. Maybe one notch below. Ertz is really good. But he and 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 would you say he's the Eagles in their passing game? He's one of their top two playmaking. Targets. I think I think he is critical within the context of what the Eagles do, but I'm right. not sure that I would put Ertz as a, in right. a vacuum, you know, just not the player himself. I don't think he's Travis Kelsey. No, 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 no. All right, so we've got a running so, back, a linebacker, the other, the other positions, a tight end. The other positions are, are not as, as glamorous, but there is a defensive tackle from Florida State named Derek Noddy, who I really like on tape. And I think he's far more athletic than some might be giving him credit for. And watching him, I thought that he could do more. I thought he could eventually stay on the field in passing situations. There were times he stood up. I thought of Jarrell Casey and how he was used by Dick LeBeau in Tennessee, where he was kind of a movable chess piece a little bit. Uh, Derek Nani kind of struck me as that kind of player. I might be in the minority here, but that's what I saw. How'd you find Derek Nani? Was it someone you'd read about, or were you watching no, Florida was, State for well, something else? I was else? Florida State because of Derwin James, the safety. Okay. Who's, Who probably, like, who's going right? to be a top top 10, top 12 pick. Derwin yeah. James is a real... I mean, he. I didn't mention him only because everybody's yeah, yeah. going to have him there. But, uh, so but Nani popped is, is the point. Yeah, and I watched him too, yeah. Interesting. And you go... Yeah, more, well, then I, I, then I have... Then I have... Uh, Two offensive linemen. I have a guard from Auburn named Braden Smith, who I, I, I think he's one of those guys. When I watched him, I said to myself, this guy could be a 10-year pro at guard. 10-year starting, may never be an all-pro, may never be you know first or second on, on the list of offensive guards. But the guy I felt you could line him up, and he'll start for you, and you'll feel pretty good. And then the other guy who I thought was really fascinating was an offensive center from Iowa named James Daniels, who was athletic, super athletic and flexible for, for a center. I mean, th- this guy really stood out because you don't see that kind of athleticism and flexibility and movement from offensive centers, and he really stood out to me. we got to come back after the draft and play and, and oh, see boy. where these six guys landed. Call them on it. Well, no, not call them on it because you can't do that till we right. till they play a whole True. career. But after the draft, it'll be interesting to see where these guys landed and, and if they were evaluated. The, if they popped to evaluators the way they did for Greg. And, and keep one thing in mind, and, and again, I, I'm totally fine with – I've been wrong just like a lot of people. You've never been wrong. Yeah. Greg. But I think that 
offensive linemen as well become a function of of team and what their run games are, what they're asked to do in pass protection. I mean, you know, because every guy, for the most part, there, you know, there's very few pristine offensive linemen. Maybe Quentin Nelson is one of them, but there's very few, and their their flaws or weaknesses can be exposed depending on what they're asked to do. Cer- but, certainly, in the era of the bipedal. <laughs> matriculate from biped uh, to tribe. This, this is like uh, we're we're doing a little evolution here, uh, Paul. The on that man, Greg. Yeah. On that note, let's get Greg to Indianapolis. Thanks to our engineer, Mike Kennedy, to our producer, Rich Owens, to the guru, Greg Cosell, for spending a few quality minutes with us as he heads west. A few. We could have done like four hours here. There's so much to talk about at the Combine and the Draft. Watch NFL Films content, yes, even during the offseason, every day of the year on our social media platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are still making football movies and putting that content out in the world for you. And watch the Combine on NFL Network this week. From the home of America's football movies in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>